right, well, uh, good morning and welcome to Jericho Ridge. My name's Brad, I'm part of the teaching leadership team here at Jericho. And as you uh, come in and take your seats, you can see from that intro that we are going through the book of Second Kings this summer at Jericho. And uh, this morning we are in Second Kings chapter 5. And we're looking at the life of the prophet Elisha and all of the strange events and occurrences that uh, transpire around his life. And this morning we're going to look at perhaps one of the most well-known stories uh, that connects with the prophet Elisha, and that is the story of Naaman from 2 Kings chapter 5. And the story of Naaman, though, has very strange elements to it, and it unfolds a little bit like a play in three acts. And we're going to look at each of them. We're going to look at each of the people in them. And they're all drawn together by strange circumstances beyond their control. And they unite on a journey that will change them all. And I love the poetic way in which Catherine Hawker sets up this strange play in her work, Liturgies Outside. She writes a poem that says, and this goes like this. A little girl, an army commander, a religious zealot. For one brief moment, difference suspended, doubt superseded. Ordinary water, simple ritual, extraordinary presence. Will we have the courage of the child to reach out even to the powerful? Will we have the wisdom of Naaman to ask for help when we are lost? And will we have the faithfulness of Elisha to love outside of the lines? So these are the questions we're going to ask ourselves as we look into 2 Kings chapter 5. If you have your Bibles or your phones, turn with me and we will start with Act 1 of our three-act uh, play. And Act 1 really is a tragedy. It's a horrible tragedy on multiple fronts. Because you see, this happens at a time in history when life is really hard and difficult. And we have local nation states that are all vying for power and control and of different areas. And they have armies. And their armies occasionally go out and conduct raids on the neighboring nation states. And so one day, neighbor uh, from the the nation of Aram, armies go out and they conduct a raid in the nation of Israel. And these raiders come and they plunder a local village and they kill men and women and they take as slaves back to the nation of Aram some young girls and they sell them to the highest bidders. So it's human trafficking for the purpose of economic and military supremacy. And if you think about the impact that that would have on the lives of these young girls who are ripped away from everything that they know. And their parents and their homes and they're sold into this life. And the girl in this particular story finds her way into the home of a socially and politically powerful person. And in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 2, it says, At this time, uh, Aramean raiders invaded the land of Israel, and among their captives was a young girl, and she had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. Now, Naaman, we learn from 2 Kings chapter 1, is the commander of the army of 
Aram. He's an amazing warrior. He's highly skilled. He's highly successful in battle. He's greatly respected by the king of Aram and all of his troops. But though Naaman is a mighty warrior, he suffers from leprosy. Now, leprosy isn't something that we're accustomed to seeing in uh, our world today, although it still does exist. But it was much, much more common in the ancient world. And leprosy is a kind of skin disease that is incurable. And it's contagious, and usually it results in the eating away of your flesh to the point where parts of your body begin to fall off. So this is the most tame picture for family-friendly Sundays that I could find uh, of leprosy. It's really, really bad. It's not something that you would wish even on your worst enemy. But there's an interesting thing that happens in our story in 2 Kings 5, verse 3. One day, the young girl who's been taken away from her home and her family, sold into slavery and forced labor, she says to her mistress, I wish that my master, Naaman, would go and see the prophet Elisha in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. Think about this for just a minute. This young girl has had her life ruined and destroyed by the Aramean army. And she works now as a slave in the home of the head of the very army that destroyed her life. And if I'm her, I'm sitting around plotting my revenge. I'm thinking about, okay, I wonder if I can get in and poison that guy's food. You know, I'm, I'm scheming how I can pay him back for the horrible losses that have been inflicted, not just on me, but on my family, on my neighbors, and on my nation. And yet this young girl has a very different set of experiences that she wants to see come into Naaman's life. She wants Naaman to be healed of leprosy. She wants to pay back someone who has dealt evil into her life with good. See, Jesus instructs us about this. Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute us. But friends, let's be honest with each other. That's incredibly difficult work. Like our natural inclination in situations where someone has harmed us or wronged us or cheated us in a business transaction or hurt us deeply in a personal relationship is we want to take that anger and store it up, amplify it, weaponize it, and then unleash it on whoever did wrong to us. But this little girl chooses a different pathway. She models something different, a path of healing and forgiveness in love in the face of all of the evil and wrong that's been done to her. And it made me, when I was reading this text, again, just pause for a moment and ask myself the question, okay, so Jesus invites us and empowers us to practice radical love for our enemies. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verses 26 and 27, but to those who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who hurt you. Can you bless those 
who curse you? Can you bless those who hate you? Can you do good to them? It's an incredibly challenging invitation that Jesus puts in front of us. And obviously there's some things that we need to think carefully and clearly about. Not continuing to put ourselves in places, for example, where abuse or harm is being perpetuated and just say, well, I just have to love them anyways. That's what Jesus says. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying, though, is that there might come an opportunity in your life where someone has, has destroyed your reputation. Someone has sought nothing but the worst for you. And there might come a moment in your life where you have the opportunity to say something to them. And what will you say? Could you, by God's grace, come to a place where you would be able to speak blessing into their lives and say, even perhaps like Joseph, you know what, you intended it for evil, God used that for good. Or I know that you are an individual that in our relationship, you know, we saw things differently and you were very antagonistic, but I just want you to know that I continue to pray for you and pray blessing into your life. It's an incredibly hard thing to do, but this young girl has come to this place in her life that she wants something for Naaman. She wants healing for him. And so she says to him, you know what? I serve and love a God who's real, and I think you should go and speak with the prophet about that. And so act two of the tale gets even more strange because after some consultation with the king of Aram and Israel, Nathan set, uh, sets out, Naaman sets out rather to visit the prophet Elisha, whom this young servant girl has told him can cure his leprosy. Now, I don't know about how you do when you're packing for a, a trip, but this Naaman guy does not travel lightly. So you'll see over here, just to the side of the stage, we have a little bit of a setup for uh, how Naaman is going to travel. So the first thing that he brings with him is he brings 750 pounds worth of silver. This is way over the weight restrictions of any reasonable airline in the world. And it needs a huge carrying case probably or multiple servants for him to take. So we have a very large luggage piece here for him to carry his 750 pounds worth of silver. Now, I don't have 750 pounds worth of silver. If I did and I was to sell it, it would probably be worth about $168,326 and it would be very, very hard to carry on a road trip. But Naaman decides this is important. He's going to take that with him and he's going to bring this as a gift. And then he also packs some gold. And so the gold that he takes with him is about 150 pounds worth of gold. That's worth about $181,200. And so we're going to have this big green suitcase here represent uh, Naaman's oversized bag that he needs to pack his gold in in order to take that with him. So he does not travel lightly. And then on top of that, then we have this guy who wants to take 10 new sets of clothing. So I need a volunteer 
and maybe one of the kids wants to come, and you're going to do a, a packing exercise with me here. We're just going to see, do you think that we can fit 10 uh, cases, or 10 sets of clothes into one suitcase for a trip? So who wants to be our volunteer for today? All right, Ben's going to come. All right, Ben's going to pack it up for us here. Let's see. We've got 10 pairs of pants. We've got 10 shirts, short and long sleeve. We've got 10 pairs of socks. We saved you the other elements that entire of a full set of clothing. But um, like, Ben, how would you pack 10 sets of clothes into a suitcase? What's your, what's your strategy? Oh, roll them up. Okay, how many of you are rollers when you pack things? Whoa, a good number. All right, let's go for it. See if we can uh, do 10. Okay. Oh, he's rolling them like really tightly. Whoa, this is like very efficient. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll let Ben, we'll let ben kind of continue with his packing here and see how he does it, you know. For me, when I pack, I just take things and throw them in the suitcase. Like, they're going to get wrinkled anyways, but... Ben has a strategy around his role. Like, oh, he's even like figuring out which pants should be like stacked with which ones. Well, I, I'm not that good at packing. Um, you know, when you pack for a trip, you know you have airlines that are concerned and they carry about how much luggage you're carrying with you, right? They're always wanting to make sure, well, how much does it weigh? Well, this is obviously because they need to know, can the plane take off with everything that we have in it? And so airlines actually are very sophisticated. Oh, Al's going to come and help him now with this. Are you a roller, Al, when you go as well? I am now. <laughs> Al's a convert to the rolling method of packing. So, you know, when airlines are asking you about how heavy your luggage is, uh, this is because they want to know, does the plane have enough fuel to make it to its destination? And so the Federal Aviation Administration in the U.S. has decided on averages for travelers. And they don't make any seasonal adjustments, winter clothes weighing more than summer clothes, any of this kind of stuff. So the Federal Aviation Administration has told airlines in the States this, that they're going to assume that in between, uh, that they're going to assume about 200 pounds for men and 179 pounds for women, and uh, the 76 pounds for children under 13. So this is an interesting estimate because this includes the passenger weight, includes all of the suitcases, and includes 16 pounds per person of carry-on luggage. Now, how many of you, when you travel, with your spouse, if you're married, how many of you think that men take more things on trips than women do? Or do women take more things? Hands up if women take more things on trips. So you are all, the Federal Aviation Administration disagrees with you in terms of who carries more stuff with them. Their assessment is that men carry more things with them. You got all of that into one half of the suitcase. Whoa. All right, maybe I'm a convert to rolling. Wow. So Naaman's going to set off on his trip, right? So he's got 
his suitcase full of gold. He's got his suitcase here that he's got his 10 new sets of clothing in, which he's going to give to the prophet as a gift and make sure that the prophet knows, like, this is really important that he's come all of this way, right? So he's got this and he's got his gold and then he's got all of his silver that he's going to take on his trip with him. So he shows up at check-in to the airlines and they start freaking out and thinking about, so Ben, can you just maybe um, start off on your trip maybe down the, just down the uh, aisle way here and we'll get you, Ben, can you come on back up at the front and we'll just get you to, to start off on your trip here, take all of your uh, stuff and just maybe get it to the back there and we'll just park it there for a little while. So there's a lot of stuff that Naaman is taking with him. And he comes all this way and Naaman's on his journey and he wants to figure out if there is a true God in Israel. And so, oh, we're going to lose some, There we go. Thanks. For, <laughs> uh, so Naaman is, is thinking, okay, I'm going to go and see this like really important person. And so I need to come laden with all of these gifts. And Naaman's got this picture in his mind. Okay, when I get there, I'm going to show up and ask for my healing. And he's going to like wave some magic wand over me and boom, leprosy is going to be gone. This is going to be fantastic. I'm going to leave all this stuff with him so I don't have to carry it home on the, on the plane, flight with me. And then this is going to be amazing. But let's pick up the story in 2 Kings uh, chapter 5, verse 9. So Naaman went with all of his horses and his chariots and he waited at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message. Yeah, go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. Wait a minute, Naaman thinks to himself. I come all this way with all of my luggage and I, my 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, my 10 outfits, and the prophet won't even come out and dignify me with an in-person response. He sends a servant out and tells me to go down and bathe in some stinky, dingy local waterway? This is completely unacceptable. And so Naaman then says, uh, carrying on in verse 11. Naaman became angry and he stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out and meet me. He said, I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy, call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus where he's from, the Abna and the Parfar, better than any of the rivers of Israel? Why shouldn't I go and wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned away and he went away in a rage. Now, to be fair to Naaman, whatever your picture of the Jordan River is, and some of you have been there, the Jordan River is no mountain stream. At some places, it's really nothing more than a muddy drainage ditch. So the idea that you could take a bath in it and come out cleaner than when you went in, let alone coming out cured from an incurable disease is laughable and ridiculous. So in his anger, Naaman decides, I am done with this. 
I'm going to take my 750 pounds, 150 pounds of my 10 pounds, and we are going home. This trip is a bust. But one of his officers starts to reason with him and says, you know what, sir? If the prophet Elisha had told you to do something super difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So shouldn't you certainly obey him when he says simply go and wash and be cured? Like it's not that hard. It's super strange and weird, but we're here. We brought all the luggage. I don't want to take it back. Can we at least try? So verse 14 says, Naaman went down to the Jordan River and he dipped himself in it. Not once, not twice, not two times, three times, four times, five times, comes up the sixth time, he's still got leprosy. The seventh time he comes up and his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child and he was healed. I make no mistakes about it, friends. This is a strange healing. A man dips in a muddy drainage ditch seven times, and on the seventh time, God does something impossible and grants to a foreign army commander who's searching for something that's real, healing, physically and spiritually. And by God's grace and by God's spirit, Elisha's not even present, but healing comes to Naaman that day and his life is forever changed. So Naaman responds in the only way that he knows how. He takes his gifts and his suitcases and he heads back to Elisha's house. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God in verse 15. And they stood before him and Naaman said, now I know there is no God in all of the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant or a few gifts from your servant. But Elisha replied, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept any gift. And though Naaman urged him to take the gifts, Elisha refused. And then he went in peace. So just to be clear, the reason that Elisha doesn't accept any gifts is he wants Naaman to be clear. He wants Naaman to understand that Naaman did not buy or purchase his healing from God. Elisha needs it to be clear to Naaman and to everyone else that this was simply God's grace at work in the life of a man who is willing to trust and willing to take a risk and willing to travel a long way with a lot of luggage to find out if God was real. That's the reason Elisha doesn't want any of these gifts. He just does not want Naaman to be confused as to why God acted in the way that he did. See, we live in a world where we're told things like, well, you can't get anything for free or there's no free rides, and where often we equate the value of a relationship with the gifts necessary to open a door to that relationship. And that can leave sometimes some of us feeling like we need to earn God's favor and love. Surely we could do something 
to kind of impress God. You know, let God know how serious we are about how much love we have in our hearts for him. Maybe we could do something flashy and impressive to make God pay attention to us. Maybe show up at church every now and then. Put a few bucks in the offering. Maybe say a prayer now and again. Maybe that Project 345 Bible reading the pastor's always on and on about. Maybe I should become a member like Peter and Debbie did this morning. Maybe if I do those things, I'll really prove to God that I'm worthy of being a recipient of his love and mercy. Do you ever feel a need to earn God's love? Listen to the word of the Lord which is altogether true and is given to us in love from Ephesians 2. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Naaman brings with him $349,526 of silver and gold and 10 really nice sets of clothes to buy his healing. But God just says to him, you know what? It's on the house. It's free. Why? Because God is recklessly generous and lavish in his love. See, God's grace and his love are given freely. But you have to receive them. See, God's not a bully that forces himself on people or forces things onto people that they don't want. Many of you here in this place have received the incredible gift of God's grace and forgiveness. And so many of the songs that we sing as a community speak powerfully to that reality. They remind us time and again of the priceless gift and they call us back to places of gratitude and places of celebration. Because it's important to remember that while grace and love are given freely and without a cost to us, there was an incredible cost to God an incredible personal cost to God. Jesus chose to offer up and give his life freely as an act of love so that you and I could live as recipients of the healing and reconciliation that God provides. And Naaman almost missed that by trying to earn it and trying to buy it. Naaman almost missed it because his pride almost kept him from doing a simple act of obedience. His pride was hurt. He didn't get greeted the way he wanted at the door. He got asked to do something that was difficult. It was strange to him. But yet, in the end, he said yes. Friends, don't miss out on what God has for you in his love and his grace because you're just too stubborn to listen. See, the way that you respond to God is by opening your heart and simply saying yes to Jesus. Yes, I need you, God. I acknowledge that a price has been paid for this grace and love to come into my life, and you chose to pay that price on the cross. And friend, if you've never done that, we have people at the end of our gathering who would love to pray that with you. Today is gonna, could be your day.
So don't miss that process of receiving your healing. So that's act one and act two, but remember we have three acts. Oftentimes the story of Naaman finishes there and we go, yay, Naaman got his healing and went back and isn't that fantastic, that's so awesome. But act three continues the story and it gets a little crazy because it involves somebody we met last week in Pastor Mike's sermon, Elisha's servant Gehazi or Gehazi. And it involves greed and his greed and the consequences for him of pursuing it. So let's keep reading in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse, uh, sorry, 2 Kings 5, uh, verse 20. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, gets to thinking to himself about all of this great stuff that Elisha just sent home with Naaman. And he says, my master should not have let this Aramean get away without accepting any of his gifts. As surely as the Lord lives, I will chase after him. I'm going to get something from him. So Gehazi sets off after Naaman. Naaman sees Gehazi running after him. He climbs down from his chariot and went to meet him and says, is everything all right? Naaman asks. Oh, yeah, yeah, says Gehazi. But um, uh, my master sent me to tell you that... Uh, uh, two young prophets, yeah, that's it. Two young prophets have just come. They like just arrived after you left from the hill country of Ephraim. And um, I'm wondering if maybe we could have 75 pounds of silver, uh, you know, just like, like 10% of what you brought and like maybe two sets of clothing. It's for them, right? It's for the prophets that just arrived. Oh, by all means, take twice as much Naaman insisted. So Naaman gives him two sets of clothing, ties the money up in two bags. So Ben, I need your help again. Ben's like, oh, I thought I was off duty now. So pick any two sets of clothes from the suitcase, and then there was like a little change jar in there. Uh, take the change jar and, and put that into the carry-on. So Gehazi is, is like downsizing on the big suitcase, and he's going to like just take a little bit of all of the stuff that Naaman uh, brought with him, and he's going to take it home, and we're going to see what he does with it. So Naaman gives him everything that he asks for, and then Naaman actually sends two of his servants with him to carry the gifts back for Gehazi. But Gehazi doesn't want to attract attention, see. So when he gets to the city, in the citadel, he takes the gifts from the servants and he sends the men back to Naaman, thanks, I'll take it from here. And then he goes and he takes those gifts and see, he's got to put them inside a suitcase that he can hide somewhere. So he can't bring back all of the big, big traveling cases. He needs to just sort of have gotten it down to a manageable location or a manageable size that he can stash somewhere so he can go back and get it later. So we've got the silver coming out. We've got two shirts there. All right, we've got a couple of pair of socks. We've got two. Perfect. All right. So, Gehazi takes this stuff, sends the rest on with Naaman, doesn't want to attract attention with that big carrying coming, he just kind of takes it back with him and figures, okay, well, I'll go back and get this later. Nobody will notice if I just stash it underneath here. 
And then like at least I've got something, right? Because I mean, my master turned all of that stuff down. He was ready to give us like a fortune. And I think we should have at least took a little bit. I mean, we did do stuff. I mean, I went out and I greeted him and I told him what the prophet said, right? So I get a cut on all this stuff. And then Gehazi goes into his master in verse 25. And when he comes in, Elisha says to him, where have you been? Uh, 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 nowhere, Gehazi says. And then Elisha says to him, didn't you realize that I was there in spirit? Like God gave him a prophetic revelation that he knew what Gehazi was doing. When Naaman stepped down from the chariot to meet you, is this the time to receive money and clothing, olive groves, vineyards, sheep, cattle, male, female servants? No, it's not. This is the time when God wants to demonstrate his grace and his love freely to a foreigner, and you've ruined all of that. And he says, because you've done this, you and your descendants will suffer from Naaman's leprosy forever. And when Gehazi left the room, he was covered with leprosy. His skin was as white as snow. Serious business. Because Gehazi actually robbed Naaman of the truth and the reality of God's free gift to him. See, this reminds us, friends, that nothing is hidden from God, least of all the financial aspects of our lives. Nothing is ever hidden from God. We like to say, you know, in ad campaigns, speed kills. Well, in this situation for Gehazi, and indeed for each of us, greed kills. Because greed and dishonesty have a way of sneaking in the back door of our lives if we leave it unguarded. That's not to say that having nice things is wrong. That's not to say that having money is wrong, but we're continually reminded in scripture that no matter whether we own a little or we own a lot, we need to keep our lives free from greed, free from the love of money. Not free from money itself, but the love, the absolute passionate grip of greed on our lives. In our 365 uh, reading plan. We read through the book of Proverbs and we read a proverb on the day uh, of the month that it is. So today we're reading Proverbs 12. And uh, Proverbs 1, 19 says, such is the fate of all who are greedy for money. It will rob them of life. See, we think in North American culture, oh, you know, Greed is one of those sins that it's not that bad. Like murder, that's horrible. But greed, you know, a little bit of greed, that's just ambition, that's not a bad thing at all. But friends, greed is serious. It's not an acceptable sin. It's often listed in the New Testament with one of the things that we are to guard religiously and zealously against. Proverbs 21, 26 says, some people, they're always greedy for more, but the godly love to give. So in that verse and in many other places in the scripture, we learn the antidote to greed. If you feel like greed is setting into your life and into your heart in a sneaky way, or dishonesty is setting in in some way, the antidote to that is radical generosity. 
If you find yourself in a situation where you're hiding your credit card statements from your spouse, lest they see your spending habits, or you find yourself saying yes to things without considering if you can actually afford them, or if you consider or find yourself drawn to and always thinking and scheming about how you can get the boat or the car or the fancy holidays that your friends or your neighbors have, watch out. Greed might be knocking at your door and trying to sneak into your life. And we're to be on guard against it. One of the most powerful ways to combat greed is the practice of radical generosity. Because giving breaks the stranglehold that greed can have on our hearts. Because you're taking an action that is completely counterintuitive to everything that our human nature says about resources. When you give, you're saying, God, you have provided for all of my needs, and I trust you. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, we should never give reluctantly or in response to pressure or, or feeling compulsion, but God loves it when we give cheerfully or hilariously. And this too is really hard work, friends. But that's why one of our core values here at Jericho is generous living, because we're firmly convinced that we serve a God who is a generous God. And God has given of himself and given to us as a church community and given to you as an individual lavishly and generously. And then when we turn around and when we give generously and sacrificially and lavishly, we are simply reflecting and living out God's heart for this world. And that's why we give. And so I'm gonna actually invite our ushering team, Sandy and Muriel, uh, sorry, Joel and Sharon are ushering this morning, right? Up. And I'm gonna invite our worship and song team to come and our prayer team members this morning, our Pastor Wally and myself and Constance. And we are going to be available uh, to pray for and with you. And I'm gonna pray for us as a community that we would be known as a generous people. Let's pray together. God, we acknowledge the difficulty of uh, standing against temptation, the temptation to want to lash out and hurt people who have hurt us, the temptation to want to impress you somehow through our actions, the temptation to want to accumulate and be in charge of the future by hoarding our resources, God, from all of these things, we need your healing and your deliverance as individuals and as a community. And so God of mercy and grace, we declare your sovereign rule over all aspects of our life and your church and our lives. You're generous to us. And so we desire to be generous to people around us. You give so freely to us, and so we want to be those who are marked by generosity of time and resources and the things that you have entrusted to us with our homes and practicing radical